Welcome to the Founders Podcast. Whose bright idea was this anyway? I'm Andrew Peyton Smith, founder and CEO of Jizoodle. So episode two of the Founders Podcast, Whose Bright Idea Was This Anyway? And this week, I've got two very special guests with me um, from the Founders 10X cohort that we're all on together. I've got Payab Gibbons from Cash. Hi, Andrew. And Sean Greenhoff from Time Chi. Welcome, yeah. gentlemen. Right. We've got two wonderful founders on today. Maybe, Caleb, maybe you can give us a little bit of information and background about Cash. Sure. So cash is a powerful new way to invest and save because investing for a lot of people is really difficult and it's scary. They think they're going to lose money. So we've built a platform that breaks down all the barriers to invest and it's all available on an easy-to-use app. Excellent. That sounds groundbreaking. Absolutely groundbreaking. And Sean? Yeah. Oh, great. Elevator pitch. You all have to learn how to do this, by the way. If you ever want to be in a startup, learn how to do the elevator pitch. So I'm from TimeChain. We are a solution to the problem of distraction and not getting enough work done in your workplace. Because the truth is that we all get exceptionally distracted, whether it's Facebook, Slack, emails, or even just your office neighbor asking you, hey, how was your weekend? The truth is that this takes up a lot of your time and takes away hours of deep focused work that you need to get done to be able to go home on time. So we've created a software and hardware solution that uh, sits nicely on your desk and connects to an app on your phone and computer so that with a press of a button, it shuts down all of your digital distractions, but with its bright display, also tells your colleagues gently that you're not to be disturbed and unlike wearing headphones, when to come back. Perfect. I think the amount of times that I could have used your app actually in the last six months would be because I just constantly distracted. So you yeah, don't worry. It's a device I made for myself because I know how distracted I can be especially on uh, Facebook, you know, when somebody's wrong on the internet, got to tell them. Absolutely. So um, we're all on our, on our startup journeys. Um, Caleb, tell me a little bit about where you've come from and what your background is. Sure. So I think before um, founding Cash, I was an investment funds lawyer for Minter Ellison, and I'd been there for five years. I was an associate um, specialising in investment funds, financial services, financial services regulation. Um, so it's pretty dry stuff, but it's really relevant when starting a fintech investment app, which is good. And Sean, what, what's your background? You've been involved in a number of startups previously. Yeah, it's a fairly long story, but I guess one of the interesting things that people don't realize is that as of university, I was actually, I did biotechnology and was a cancer researcher for a long while before I got into doing business development for a biotech company. But I guess like, you know, I always had a keen interest in business growing up in Hong Kong. Everybody had a business idea, wanted to like do something. Yeah. So kind of like that and the interest I had in computers kind of pivoted me towards startups. And I'd been in a couple of startups, went through one with a went to the Meridi program and then kind of decided uh, after leaving that one that I needed to take some time to myself. Couldn't do that. Decided to try an IoT enable my home, created a light switch, but realized that, hey, if I wanted to sell this, I need to be super focused because I was spending way too much time on the internet arguing. Just like watching YouTube videos, things like that. But I created the Time Chi as a way to solve that problem and then realized that, hey, this is possibly something that lots of people could use. So started that as a company. 
So right. you solved the problem of cat videos on YouTube. Oh, cat videos was a small, <laughs> small corner of the internet that was the problem. If you've ever been to Sydney startups, you can see some of the interesting uh, conversations, we'll call it, that people have on that one. And it's like, I had to kind of get myself away from that because I realized that when I'm starting a business, working with my own money, it's like, oh, crap, I've got to work with my own money. This is my money I'm burning. So it's like, yeah. you know, got to be more focused. But, you know, it was interesting. Like, it's kind of like one of those aha moments when somebody sees something that you're doing and they're like, hey, I could use that. And you suddenly stop and go, uh-huh, maybe this could be a business. Absolutely. And kind of what was the inspiration for Cash? I think we looked at the investment journey for ordinary people and realized it was very different from the investment journey for wealthy individuals. Mm-hmm. I think if you're wealthy and you're investing hundreds of thousands of dollars, you have advisors you have a network of support, and you probably have a background knowing how to deploy that money. Yeah. But for someone investing, say, 10, 20, or 50 grand for the first time, or, or perhaps they're in the first couple of years of investing, the experience is really different. It's really difficult to learn how do I invest? What's a good investment? What's a bad one? How do I not put all my money at risk? And so we thought, look, there's got to be a solution to this problem to give people the confidence to invest their money in a way which is responsible. And so we built a platform built around solving that problem. So our investment options are easy to understand, taking too much risk unless you want to go for a high-risk option. Our options are conservative, balanced, and growth. We also have a, a savings option so that you know if you want to keep money safe, you don't have to put it all at risk. And then because we thought people with, say, a ten dollars to $50,000 investment don't have the money to just put all their money in the market and wait six, 10 years, We attached it to a MasterCard, which we call our cash card, so that you can access your money in real time. We've also hooked it up to the the payments network so you can send money directly to any other bank account number in Australia. And that's a world first, integrating a payments platform with an investment platform. Absolutely. And and in this day and age of record low interest rates, I mean, this is absolutely um, very much needed in, in the marketplace. Yeah, where were you when I actually had savings? I had a little bit more burn, burn for my savings for this company. But like, yeah, I really wish I invested my money uh, in a way like yours. Well, I think it's getting more and more important because like the cash rate's coming down and down and down. It just went down again this week. Yesterday, um, wasn't it? Yeah, yesterday. Yeah. And it's projected to drop again at least once, if not twice. We're heading towards actual negative interest rates. We're already well below inflation, so currently negative real interest rates. So the only way to get a a real return on your money is to invest it. Um, And we're giving people a platform to do it without hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, it's um, it's a massive area area at the moment with um, these lack of real returns on on your savings and so forth. Okay, um, so we've all been involved in our startup journey. Just wanted to get your thoughts on um, how you feel the Australian startup and innovation uh, seniors in, in 2019. What do you feel is the, the, the real plus points and the real barriers to innovation in Australia? Maybe we'll start with you, Sean. Yeah, I think I was having a chat to some VCs and like people within the, the startup ecosystem and realized that we're basically a generation one of startups in Australia. I mean, like when you go to the US, you know, you hear the stories of Silicon Valley and stuff and people getting funding for their second startup after working at Google or something like that. And you realize that they've gone through already their second, maybe third generation. So it's like, you know, the founders in the U.S. are basically funding the new generation of founders where we're still kind of like the, that very first generation. You know, we've only had like a few 
genuine unicorns here. Like, you know, you have your Canvas, your Atlassians and stuff like that. And even though they're starting to uh, reinvest their money back into the ecosystem, it's a lot more rare. Plus, but on top of it, like there are so many smaller communities. I mean, when we started Tai Chi, we act, um, I and a couple of friends who were also doing hardware startups or startups with hardware in it, started a community online called OzHard. And it was the first kind of like online community for people who had startups in Australia that had something to do with physical products. And we're now about 760 people strong in about a year and a half, which is great. And we tend to share a lot of information and stuff, but like, you know, these sorts of communities have been around for like, you know, a decade plus in the United States. And we're just, uh, well, kind of like realized, hey, nobody else is doing it, better get it done. So starting it ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Caleb, what about yourself yourself and thought and innovation in Australia in 2019? I think, I don't know about the word innovation, but the context of startups in Sydney, Australia, 2019, I think it's a pretty good place to be, but it's not Silicon Valley. I think it's interesting. A lot of people are critical of Australia for startups, but I think that's because they're comparing us to the best in the world, which is Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. I think we're probably better than most places in the world, just not quite as good as those two. London or Silicon Valley in terms of funding and, and support. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think that's the way it is. I think in Sydney today, at the end of the day, you need to build a startup out of nothing. Mm-hmm. You've got to convince people who've never done a startup before to get involved. Yeah, That means you've got to convince people who don't know about startup investing to invest in your startup. You've got to convince employees who've never worked for a startup to work for your startup. Yeah. And you've got to get customers who've never bought from a startup that may or may not deliver their product to take a leap of faith and sign a contract with you that you're going to deliver a product for them. Absolutely. And I think those challenges are here and they're real and they're real all over the world. And I think there's some pockets where it's easier, maybe Silicon Valley or London or a couple of other spots. But by and large, building a startup is hard because most people are used to dealing with companies that have revenue and track records and history. And they think, I like st- stability, I like strength. And a startup says, I don't have strength or stability, but I have an amazing goal and I'm going to change the world. That's a new message for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think there's a difference in risk aversion from what you're saying in Australia to other parts of the world? Well, I think generally, like, you know, the populace has been, like, everybody puts their investments into a home or a few investment properties where, like, the government helps with negative gearing and stuff like that. So it makes a reasonable help to kind of like put investments that way. But like, you know, for the last couple of decades since I got to Australia, like there was this big mining boom and everybody put money into the stocks for that, pulling stuff out of the ground, which only lasted so well, it's pretty much over now. I mean, they were used to doing that sort of stuff rather than investing in startups, investing in businesses, because like they realized they didn't know too much about them. Mm. As Caleb said, like you're trying to convince people who invested in shares in like, your Coles, your West Farmers group and things like that. And they were used to kind of like seeing a giant investment prospectus for like the next time they did either like a share offering or something like that. And you're now trying to convince them, hey, we just need a small amount of money for this business because we see ourselves as a billion dollar company in the next 10 to 15 years, IPO in the US, if you wanted to do that, if not here. Mm. And it's kind of like still educating investors here that hey this is going on this is what's happening and this is what you can do and i guess a few of these companies like as mentioned like canvas and atlassian mm. say Wallex, those ones kind of like you know start to increase the amount of knowledge about startups and yeah. make it less unknown and a little bit more hey i'm uh, gonna be 
a little bit less risk adverse and yeah. jump onto something that might make me in a hundred X return. And so what specific barriers do you think you've had to your ability as a start startup founder for, to innovate and to get your products and your messages out to, out to the wider public? I don't know about particular barriers. I'll just say it's, it's a really hard job. You're going out into the world with a new message they haven't heard before. Mm-hmm. And you're telling everybody there's this new way of doing things. The current way is broken and we can do it 10 times, 100 times better. Yeah. And they haven't heard that before. So, so convincing people of that message mm-hmm. is hard. Yeah. And you have to convince everyone of that. You have to convince investors and customers and your teammates, mm-hmm. maybe co-founders, maybe advisors, maybe business partners, maybe your suppliers. Everybody, right? And so you're going into the world saying, I'm going to create or we're going to create this amazing opportunity and you want to be a part of it because it's so amazing. Yeah. And that's just a really hard job. Yeah, absolutely. And what about yourself? Sure. Gee, well, what makes things difficult? I think like everybody has like difficulties finding co-founders and like people to join them on their startup journey. I have to say that I was a little bit luckier than most with that one with uh my co-founding team who has been absolutely fantastic. But I guess one of the big things that everybody always says about like, hey, what's the biggest hurdle that you're finding? It's like, well, as any startup needs kind of like capital expenditure to be able to get into that hyper growth phase, it takes a fair amount of time and pressure to like try and get investors to join you on your story and in your journey. I mean, for us, it's also a little bit difficult because we do have a hardware component in our company that the size of the ecosystem meant that lots of investors who were less risk adverse and invested in startups potentially invested in uh, some high profile hardware startups that failed. And it's not uncommon to hear them go, oh, I invested in X and lost a lot of money. And it's like, well, it's if you want to play that game, then it's like you've got to invest in a lot of companies and one of them is going to give you your massive return. Mm-hmm. You can't just like say, hey, I invested in one and it failed. And therefore, like, you know, all of them will fail. Yeah. So, you know, you just got to, I think it's just like early days. So trying to get people on board. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, We had a really good conversation with Alan Jones in the last uh, podcast. And one of the things that he's written about and we discussed at the time was the advantage that that comes from not being a first-time founder. I'm a first-time founder as well. And uh, Caleb, you're a first-time founder, uh, but surely not. What advantages and disadvantages do you think there is to being a first-time founder and founding your first startup? Advantages to being a first-time founder? I don't know if there are too many advantages of being a first-time founder, but if there was one, I'd say it's you have confidence in things that you don't understand. (laughs) I think... Many founders have told me if they knew how hard it would be, they probably wouldn't do it. So one of the advantages of being a first-time founder is you don't know what you're getting yourself into. And then when you get into the details, you go, wow, this is so much bigger and harder than I expected. So I think probably that unfounded confidence that comes with being a first-timer is the biggest strength of being a first-time founder. You mean like the ignorance is bliss kind of thing? Well, I think you need confidence. You need to believe it. And not knowing how difficult it is is a good place to find confidence. Yeah, I mean, it's always a little bit like that. Like when you're going through your first startup, I remember when I was doing it, it's like, yeah, we can be the billion dollar company. I didn't realize how much work or time and effort it all involved. And it it was kind of like a big learning process throughout all of that. But I have to say, like, you know, sometimes to get to that next step of your of your company, you have to be risk adverse, less risk adverse. You have to be 
happy to take these risks and stuff like that. And if you haven't been burned so many times, then it means that you're more likely to take those sorts of risks. Yeah. And what would you say as a multi-founder, and what would you say be the key um, learnings that you've had on your journey, Sean? Uh, it's not easy. It's like one of the hardest things. Lots of the stories that you read in the papers about like success stories and stuff like that, you learn is only kind of like the snapshot of the finish line rather than like, you know, the whole race before there and all the struggles that come with it. I mean, like, you know, as Caleb was saying, it's if you knew how difficult it was, you might reconsider doing it. But yeah. I guess being a multi-founder without like having a huge success story must mean there is something that like something wrong in my head that means that I, <laughs> I've seen how difficult it could be and still want to do it again. But I, I think there's this kind of like insatiable drive to create, mm. which most founders do tend to have. And that's kind of like something that I have where it's like, you know, you go, well, it was difficult. It has been difficult. It's going to be difficult again, but I need to do this. Mm. It's yeah. like, I guess... It was like, I think it was Nikki from Blackbird Ventures. He said like the thing that he looks for in founders is like people who, who have this view that they're doing their life's work. Yeah. Mm. And I think like the whole strength of creation and like mm. making something, leaving your mark is mm. like, you know, one of these things that these, that founders have. Yeah, mm. absolutely. I think that's right. I think it's this, you often see in founders, this drive of, I can't not create this. Yeah. Like this thing I see, this thing I know will be big, I know will be great, I need to create it because no one else is doing it. And if I don't do it, the world will miss out on this amazing opportunity, this thing that I want to create. And I think that's common in founders, perhaps common in uh, multiple-time founders, but I think that's what gives a lot of founders the drive to get out there and take the risk and create that thing that they know the world deserves. Or maybe childhood head trauma, that could be it as well. Yeah, either way. (laughs) (laughs) You drops in your head as a baby, yeah? Uh, That makes me a little hard-headed, so just the once. (laughs) Absolutely. I think one of the things that I I wasn't prepared for, and um, and I've got a really good support network of, um, of family, friends, and so forth around me, was the, is understanding what you go through as a founder. And I think one of the things I wasn't quite prepared for was I was expecting that everybody that I knew that knew I was on this journey completely understood the journey involved with us. And have you found that yourselves that sometimes people just don't quite get what the journey that you're on and what you're having to go through? I think everybody has their own views on what you're doing. So you tell everybody a story and then three months later you might see them again. Some of them will think you're exactly where you were three months ago. Some people will expect, why aren't your product in market and why aren't you selling a million of these things? And everybody have their own views. So I think expectation management is a big part of selling your story. And it's not necessarily overselling or underselling. It's just trying to make sure that the, the support network you have understand that you're undertaking this challenge, this task, and it's climbing a mountain and it won't be over today, but equally you're going to get there, yeah. right? So I think that is that is a challenge mm-hmm. and communicating to your support network in particular is just one of those um, relationships that you really have to nurture it as a startup founder. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to explain to anybody who hasn't either started a company, a business, started a startup and things like that to understand exactly what's going on. Mm. I'm still sure that my mom probably has no clue what I'm doing <laughs> nowadays. I try to explain it to her, but like, you know, I think it's just a smile and a nod along the way. But uh, <laughs> it's like those memes you see online. It's like what people think I do, what I actually do, kind of mm. like that sort of side of things. You know, to a lot of people who are used to working in corporates, working in your normal nine to five jobs, 
like it's kind of hard to communicate what's going on and like you know the challenges that you face and why some days you you like don't want to get out of bed and then some days you feel so amped up and you're like I'm gonna do something. It's changing, like yeah. because of all the news and media articles and documentaries like Silicon Valley on HBO, um, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, kind of like you know teach people about how our world works and like the kind of like the strange unhealthy growth of companies. Like, wait, what was the term? It's like it's almost an unnatural speed of growth, and that's what we're all trying to achieve. And that's one of the more interesting things, which I think like you know, sometimes people think of like. Ones and twos when you think of them with like ones and millions. Mm. Absolutely. I think moving on, um, one of the things I want to touch on is as investor readiness and raising money. And Taylor, I just wanted to get a little bit of your insight into your experiences with investment and capital raising. Yeah, sure. I think um, investor readiness is a really interesting term. I think perhaps it was invented by some investors who think there is a particular stage at which you get investment and not before or not after. And I think my experience of it has been that there's no one stage when founders or startups need capital. Every startup is different. Mm-hmm. Some startups need capital way at the beginning before they have any traction yeah. and others don't. Others need a lot of traction to justify an investment. Perhaps that's where the term investment ready comes from. Mm-hmm. I think for us, we needed some capital up front before we had any traction, we're building a financial product, right? Yeah. You can't just open your doors and sell a financial product. You need to get licensing and regulation and compliance and that that can cost money. So we needed to raise money without any traction and, and doing that is difficult, but you can do it if you have a strong enough pitch and you know who to go to and you, and you find someone who believes in the vision enough to take that risk with you. Yeah. Um, but then going out to the broader market. If you're talking to people who've never met you before, who don't know about you, it's a harder job. It's a harder sell. Perhaps they would talk about investor readiness. Perhaps Mm -hmm. people would say, you're not ready for the investment yet. I don't actually know what that means. I think that tells you more about the investor than the investment. I think that means that investor doesn't invest in early stage companies or Mm -hmm. companies at that early stage. And that's an important thing to think about. Every investor is different. They have their own risk profile. They invest in different things. Perhaps different people have different thresholds for what they need you to tick off before they'll invest. And if someone tells you, oh, you're not ready for investment, I think perhaps you need to work on your pitch and go find an investor who has a higher risk threshold, who believes in your story, who might give you that investment you need. So I don't know what investor ready really means as a a general term out there in the world, but I think um, it probably is an indicator of, of the investor rather than the investment. Okay. Really interesting. Sure. Yeah. I mean, like exactly what Caleb was saying. It's like people kind of like use this misnomer about investor ready. Different investors, different levels of risk appetite. I mean, we've gone out and had a fair amount of people, including some fairly high level VCs, both here in the US, who said like, I like your idea. I like your company, but we won't invest in you until later on Mm. or when you're worth at least X million. And that's kind of like, their idea of like when it's ready for them because yeah. each investor has kind of like their own they they have their own goals and their own kind of investment thesis on companies that they have i mean one of the things that like happened quite a lot is like lots of people kind of like say oh i want to see this traction and that traction mm. so it's never really a no but they kind of like want to keep the, that door open mm. just in case for later on yeah. without burning too many bridges but i guess like you know saying investor ready mm. like on that side of things is like it's an absolute misnomer. But the things that you can do to be investor ready is 
you know, kind of things about like your company. So make sure that you're incorporated and that you can actually give out shares to you know, <laughs> other people. That makes you investor ready. Yeah. Make sure that you've gotten everybody in your company to sign over like an IP assignment mm-hmm. so that it means that every piece of creation that you did in your company is actually owned by the company. Things like that. I guess that's more mm. what I would say. Well, if you want to be investor ready, get that stuff uh, done and dusted. Yeah. But like, yeah. you know, when it goes to going out to investors and stuff yeah. like that, everybody's got different different luck with that. Yeah. You, yeah. See, you hear stories about somebody who had an idea and never had a business before yeah. and raises at a $10 million valuation and has like $2 million of friends and family. Yeah. And it's like, well, good for them. Yeah, like, you know, it's like, but then you hear these stories about this person who's got so much traction and stuff like that, but like finds it really hard to get investment. Mm. It's like, it's all about meeting the right people. And you just mm. got to kind of like keep trudging at that, yeah. at that mm. goal. And like, you know, make sure that you're, meeting as many people as you yeah. can because it, it all becomes a numbers game. Yeah. yeah, It's some of the best advice I was given is like treat all your investors like it was doing sales, like mm. keep them in the funnel because you got to next step, next step, next step. Mm. It's like find out how they are. And one of the biggest things that you need to do is make sure that you keep people involved. Yeah. yeah. I think you're totally right there, Sean. I think one thing I'll call out that you said, which I agree with 100%, is that a lot of investors will say, you're not ready for me, but they want to keep in touch. And I think uh, my view on it is that there are investors who invest at a later stage who, as part of their funnel, they want to get to know as many startups as they can at an earlier stage so they can say, I've seen you move over 12 months, 24 months um, or 36 months. So you'll be talking to people who may not invest at your stage, but they want to know you and they want to know your story because in, in 24 months, they want to come back and be part of that later round. Of course, you probably don't want to talk to them yet because you're focused on your current round. So what they tell you up front is, I absolutely invest in your stage. You are the right company for me. Let's talk. And then after an hour, they go, oh, you're not quite ready. Come back in 24 months. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, Come back. I'll I'll leave the trail out for you. Yeah, which makes total sense if you think about it, right? So if you were an investor, you'd probably do the same. It just means you're totally right. In um, raising capital is a funnel. You need a lot of a lot of people at the top of the funnel, and then as you go through the funnel, you work out who are the relevant investors to you, and you go after them hard. Yeah, and I yeah. mean, you look at it in a two way one because you're also kind of like you know looking for the right investors in your company as well as like you know they're looking for the right companies to invest in. Yeah, so like you know you need to do things down that way. Yeah, but like the one thing that you really should do is like make sure that anybody that you've met especially if they say, I'd like to be added to your newsletter or something, mm. just send some updates because you never know later on down the line when mm. you'll go like, hey, are you considering raising a round? Because I want to do this now. Mm. So that, that's actually brought up a really interesting point and uh, treating it like sales because you hear you hear a lot of founders say, yep, I've been to 100, 150 investors and uh, you've got to do the legwork. Um, but from what I've heard you say here, that it's actually really important to really qualify mm. the investors that you want to speak to to ensure that they're a good quality and a good fit for, for your business. I don't know if you have to qualify before you go because it's really hard to do that. Yeah. So a lot of investors don't broadcast what their mandate is because they want to see a lot of deals. Mm -hmm. So they don't want to limit their mandate up front. So sometimes you have to go to investors and meet them to find out what their mandate actually is. And like, so an example, I remember we met with some investors who we thought would be reasonable for us. And we met with them and we did the whole pitch. And at the end they said, oh, we'll get back to you about maybe a $10,000 investment. 
And for us, that was total, well below our minimum, not what we're looking for. And we couldn't have known that their minimum was, their maximum was that yeah. small yeah. way back at the beginning, right? So we couldn't qualify that or we didn't. Mm. So I think you're right, you have to qualify investors, but it's unreasonable to expect that every investor you'll meet, you'll fit their mandate, they'll yeah. fit yours. Yeah. So I think you do have to meet a lot of investors that are going to be outside your mandate, but as much as you can, qualifying it to make it a high value engagement yeah. is, is the right thing to do. And thank you for putting it on your webpage for those who do. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and thanks for getting in touch with us as well, like you're telling us what sort of stuff. I mean, it's like it always helps because you look at something and it's like, hey, I'm going to get in touch with this investor. And it's like, we only invest in deep tech or like med tech, stuff like that. And it's like, well, we're not really that one. So sorry for wasting your time. Yeah. <laughs> but like, especially if there's like, you know, some funds and stuff like that have, yeah. that have discretionary investments as well, mm. the sort of thing, but just letting people know what you do kind of, it helps a lot. Yeah, building that relationship. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, okay, that, that's great. So one of the things we've been talk, obviously we talked about with uh, investor readiness is making sure your back-end part of your business is, is in tip-top shape, for instance. I want to come on to one of the most important things for investment conversations is obviously knowing your numbers. Um, one of the things that uh, certainly on the Founders 10X program when we were meeting the various entrepreneurs, the thing that really hit me about all of these entrepreneurs was the fact that they're virtually obsessive about their numbers and their numbers that drive their business. Maybe Caleb, you could give us an insight into what types of things do you look for in your business, your, your pre-revenue at the moment, mm. but what do you look for within your business from KPI perspective and, and where do you expect that to go? Yeah, sure. So there's a few different things that we're working on that we think represent progress for our business, even though we haven't launched our product into the market yet. One is engaging our customer list and our customer engagement. So obviously um, we need to distribute to customers and we need to test out the different customer acquisition channels we have. So a key metric there is obviously sign-ups for our product, signing up for our newsletters, customer engagement across the board. Um, so we're tracking our sign-up numbers, obviously. Other things are partnership arrangements that we think will give us distribution down the track. Yeah. So that would be other organisations that we think will lead to signups when we launch. Yeah. And then finally, progress on the tech, right? So how many weeks away are we from launch? How close are we to getting our license? All of those sorts of things. And they're more of a zero to one metric, but you can take steps to say how far away are we from achieving yeah. that goal? Yeah, okay. And sure. Yeah, well, just looking at the, on the finances side of things, like we had actually sent out some trial units that people actually paid for, which is fantastic for us. And that meant that, Quite a few of our important metrics are more about the usage utilization and gives us the ability to add or take away features or rapidly iterate our product offering because our most important aspect of like our product is its stickiness and making sure that we can only help people and stay away from their distractions and get deep work done and like that sort of stuff if they're actually using our product. So we want to make sure that we can create a product offering that does that. So like the amount of time that people use our product, the amount of cycles that they do through the day, the amount of interruptions that they get, those are all important things for us that we can slightly modify. Yeah. But on the finances side of things, keeping the lights on the water running, our burn rate is also really important. Mm. But I guess like one of the more important things as you start to scale is being able to look at more the unit economics of like how much your product costs versus how much you get a return from like how much your cost for acquisition for each customer is and 
How much is your total lifetime value of that customer? Things like that. But for us, we just want to make sure that we create a product that actually helps people. So it's really about like the usage and the stickiness of our product that allows us to to be able to kind of like keep the, the momentum of our company going. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that was driven into us from uh, with, with the Founders 10 program is uh, understanding what are the key drivers and what are the key numbers of your business that's going to drive mm-hmm. your success. And I guess being a pre-release company as well, we have our wait list. I'm sure <laughs> you did the same thing, Caleb. So like, you know, the growth of the wait list and making sure that people are hearing about us is also mm-hmm. a really important metric because it means once we uh, turn the key and actually do a launch to public that we have people who have at least previously shown interest in your company and hopefully will become customers. Oh, absolutely. One other area, just want to talk about how you set your business up um, and how that evolves from a governance perspective. Obviously, one of the key things that investors will uh, want to understand is that your, your business is set up in the right way um, that will be protected in the future. Maybe, Caleb, how has your governance of your business evolved over time, moving from yourself and bringing your co-founders into maybe advisory boards and but possibly even a formal board? Yeah, sure. We haven't got a formal board yet, so we're still pretty early stage. I think we created, obviously, when you create a company as a founder, you are the shareholder, director, CEO, and the entire team. Don't forget secretary too. (laughs) And public officer. And and public officer. (laughs) So that's where you start. And then as you go and you progress, obviously your governance has to to evolve with your company. And so for us, we created one company and then we created a subsidiary and then we brought on a team and then there's a couple of directors now, but we haven't got a formal board. It's still all team members. Everybody's executive. Um, We have some advisors, but we haven't formalised an advisory board. We do have a team of advisors we expect will become our advisory board when we formalise it. And we've also identified a couple of non-executive board members for when we do formalise our board. But so far we haven't yet put that into place. So I think in terms of evolution, we've we've moved a little bit. We know there's that next step coming Mm -hmm. and we're getting ready for it, but we haven't pulled the trigger to, to bring everybody in and update yeah. the registers. That's perfect. I think the evolution theme is, is really quite important for startups. And what about yourself, Sean? Yeah, yeah. I guess like, you know, with Time Chi, we, uh, considering it wasn't like the first company, we kind of had a little bit of understanding how to start it from the start in the way that we can get investment in. So the basic things, make sure you're at least a proprietary limited so that it means that an external investor can come in. Make sure that you've got all the right paperwork, like, mm-hmm. you know, your shareholders, subscription agreements, mm-hmm. your charter and stuff yeah. like that. One of the big things as well is make sure that you've got a formalized cap table so you know exactly <laughs> how much everybody has yeah. and things like that because that's always been kind of like look, the people who don't have cap tables and everything is just a, mm. an offer of shares and an email and stuff like that tends to come back and bite you. Mm. Yeah. And so like people, they say, start saying things like, oh, I never said that or things like that, which is absolutely horrible stuff. Mm. You just want to make sure that everything is clear for everybody who's taking part in mm. the company exactly what what they're owed and what they're mm. likely to be owed. But on top of that, like the evolution in Time Chi is started off as myself and my co-founder James, and then we brought on some extra people. There's Wharton, and then we had Seb who worked with us for a little while, and I offered shares to all of them because everybody who helps grow the company yeah. should like help should be part of the spoils if it becomes a big success. I think that's kind of like the, the covenant of startups, yeah. which means that the next big thing after a round of investment that we're looking to do is also 
creating ESO pool, so mm. employee share option. Yeah. Is it a program or a pool? Program, I think. Yeah, plan. plan is the key plan. Plan. Employee share option plan. Yeah, plan. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. yeah. It tells you how to do it on ASIC, but like yeah, the main yeah. thing is like it gives you the option of mm. pardon, the option option option, mm. but it gives you the ability to give a share option to employees. Mm. So that means like not only does it become a way to get staff on board, but mm. like you know also retain staff, and it's part of that idea which I think was started in uh, the US in Silicon Valley is the fact that mm. everybody in the company needs to feel some like strength of ownership within the company and mm. if you help build it up and take all these risks with the people and like and maybe not work in the most perfect environments even though some of those startups with a lot of money seem to make the most perfect environments <laughs> with chefs and stuff like that it means they don't you have a chef Sean? I am my chef. <laughs> surely we all have chefs by this <laughs> but yeah so like, and a masseuse and a pool and <laughs> yeah, well, yes, I am that one too. Like, you know, <laughs> bootstrap companies, right? You're the masseuse to get some extra money on board. Mm. But yeah, it's like you know, you want to be able to offer things. Offer, no, I shouldn't say things after that one, but better, yeah, 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 I could have worded that a little bit better. But mm. being able to offer parts of the company mm. to the people who help build the company is kind of like mm. not only the reward of that one, but. So they feel like they are actually owners because they are. Yeah. And that means that people, it makes trying to sell the idea of taking all these risks and stuff so much yeah. better for them. So just a question, Sean, if there's a big decision in your company, how does that decision get answered? Do your team mem- Are your team members involved in making those big decisions or any of your investors or is it just um, go to the CEO? Oh, it's a total totalitarian uh, company now. <laughs> <laughs> No, I have to admit, like, it's something that we, uh, the people who are involved in the decision are basically, it's, it's, it's a company-wide decision because mm. the thing is that we, what I quickly learned from the other companies that I've been a part of is the fact that if you only have one person who has their worldview and everything, it means that typically they've got a very esoteric view on like, you know, situations and problems and stuff like that. Mm. And it's good to often have a co-founder who's on board who's almost well, the opposite, but also wanting to head in the same direction to give that kind of partially opposing, but the secondary, like critical thinking view on things. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's rarely a decision just, mm-hmm. you know, up to the CEO themselves mm-hmm. in our company. It's a decision that we have to kind of like come up with. And occasionally we try and say like, all right, let's put down notes on this one. So we have some sort of loose metric to make decisions Mm. and put together a decision-making framework, which is sometimes just an excuse to like, you know, see if you can actually put things down and put some sort of metric on, do we say yes or do we say no? Mm. But often it comes down to what's the best possible assumption Mm. as a result of making this decision. Mm. And how do you you make decisions in in your business, uh, Caleb? It's a totalitarian company. It is is not a totalitarian dictatorship in our company. But I think our company is really great. We have a great team of of people and most people in the team have their area of expertise. We have an excellent CTO, an excellent CMO. We've got everybody's kind of got their space. So usually if it's a decision within someone's someone's space, their voice will be strongest. But we do discuss our big decisions together. I think ultimately, if there's a divided opinion, we like to come to consensus. I don't know if we've had any, we've never had a vote, but but usually we have robust discussions and come to a decision. But yeah, if someone's got more expertise in an area, definitely their voice carries the most weight. 
Yeah, absolutely. Right, I've got a couple more questions before we finish up. So um, what are the top tips you can give as founders or our listeners as we've all been through this, this journey so far? Maybe we'll start with you, Caleb. What are your top tips for new startup founders? I think my top tip for a new founder would be invest in yourself because that is what you're selling to everyone else. When you're starting a company, you probably don't have a product yet. You probably don't have a customer list yet. You probably don't have any capital. So what you're selling to everyone is I am going to create this vision or we are going to create this vision. So it's that I or that we, (laughs) that's yourself, that everyone's buying into. Your early investors are saying, I want to be part of what you're doing. Your customers are saying, I want what you're making. And your partners are saying, I want to be part of that too. So if what you're actually selling to the world is I have this vision or we have this vision and we're going to create something amazing, then you better invest in yourself because that's what everybody else is buying, right? So that means, I think, in a practical sense, look after yourself, make sure your vision and your pitch is strong, work out how to convince other people that what you're doing is amazing because if you can't do that, your company is not going to succeed. So that's the. I think the biggest tip is make sure you invest in yourself because really that's what you're giving to everybody else. Yeah, absolutely. And Sean, your top tips? I think my main top tip is just keep learning. Never be too proud to say to anybody that, hey, I don't know about this one. But like at the same time, make sure that you figure out how to teach yourself the skills that you need in the mm-hmm. business. I mean, like there are so many people who say I would never do any programming and stuff like that. And like there's this uh, great website I'm sure nobody's ever heard of called YouTube, which kind of like, you know, (laughs) teaches you almost anything for free. And I mean, it's like, just keep learning. I think Tanchi has a solution for that. Yeah, (laughs) it actually helps you learn. Like one of our people who we chatted to in the early days did a Coursera course called Learning How to Learn. And it uses uh, a method that we actually use in the Tanchi itself. But yeah. There's so many times when you kind of like go, okay, I need to learn at least the top level of this one so that I know how to better describe it to somebody else. Even if you have to outsource it Mm. or like find somebody who's actually really good at doing that task, then you at least need to have a little bit of a top level understanding of it. And you've got so many resources around you and you have no excuse. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Certainly um, found in uh, the Jazoodle journey, there's a few things that I was prepared for and unprepared for on my on, on our journey. Um, Caleb, what were the key things that you were prepared for and possibly unprepared for on, on your startup journey? I don't know if you can be prepared to, start, to found a startup. I mean, and I'd say the journey for everyone's really different. I think for me, starting this journey, I thought it would be hard. It's way harder than I thought. <laughs> And I was not, I don't know if you can be prepared, but it's just a really hard journey. Yeah, you encounter all these things that you need to do. Surprises every day, both good and bad. Yeah, absolutely. I think new challenges to overcome. Yeah. Suddenly there's a new person you have to convince or there's a new team member you want to bring on or there's a new investor you want to get money from or there's a new partner you want to engage. And all of those activities seem like massive challenges at the time and then you do them and the next challenge is there. So I don't know if there's one thing that I was unprepared for because if you look back, there's a series of challenges you have to overcome and I wasn't prepared for any of them and now we've achieved so many of them and there's so many more ahead of us. So I I don't know how to answer that question, but I think just starting a startup is hard, right? Yeah, absolutely. And Sean, about yourself? Being an impatient person, I kind of like had to learn how to kind of like 
understand that things take longer than you want to optimistically think that they would. It's like, even if you think that, yeah, I, I could like put my nose to the grindstone on this one, work 24 seven and like get it done in X amount of time. It's like, no, no, that doesn't happen. There's mm-hmm. always something that's got to give somewhere. And I guess that's like learning a level of patience and more understanding about how long or short things take is probably. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's how prepare. <laughs> but isn't that so hard? Because often you're relying on other people to do work for you. Yeah. Your service providers or partners or other people, and you say, oh, I want to achieve this in this time frame. And then you go to the person who is uh, is in the in the critical path, yeah. that partner, and they go, oh, it'll take me six weeks. And you go, ah, oh, you just blew my time frame. Like, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's exactly that. Like you have to learn a little bit of patience that if something takes six weeks, then it's like you can't be like, oh, if this takes six weeks, I'll put three people onto it and let's take two. No, that doesn't work. That, that certainly doesn't work. It's like, you know, you have to learn a little bit more about patience and about working with people and about like learning how long things may or can take and kind of like almost always coming up with a contingency mm. if it, if something blows out because like that tends to happen more often than it doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. Very wise words, that's for sure. Right, final question because we're really running out of time here. This is my favourite question. Um, Caleb, if you could wave a magic wand on your startup journey, what would you wish for? Everything. I think how many magic wands do I get? As many as you want. You can't be like one of those genies where it's like you look, you ask, for, you wish for more wishes. Yeah. Choose one. But I think that's the problem. Um, startups are not a one variable problem. There's no one problem that you can say, if that was fixed, my startup would succeed. Yeah. They're not like that. You get into a startup and you've got a hundred problems of varying levels of in, of difficulty, and you need to solve all of them. So, like giving me a magic wand, it's like no, I need a hundred more. <laughs> magic wand is not that effective because you can only address it at one problem, and once you've achieved that problem, the next one's bigger. Yeah, right. So I don't know how to answer the magic wand question. I don't know. I honestly think of this one as like one of the things that tends to like slow down companies is you have to be very cautious with your resources mm. especially if you're like bootstrapped or haven't taken in a, a metric ton of invested money it means that I, I guess you could wave a magic wand and have unlimited resources to do things quickly and make mistakes mm. and iterate quickly that would probably be my wish and by resources doesn't only mean money sometimes it's like people on, mm. on the journey it's like if I had a, a Google-sized uh, engineering team, then I'm sure we could have done this a lot faster. But I can't. I can barely pay our team <laughs> at the moment, like it's because we we're not exactly Google-sized yet. But maybe we'll be a one day. But you know, it's trying mm. to make sure that you can get things done. Absolutely. I think for both your companies, I think Google size is certainly within your reach. That's for sure. That was absolutely really wonderful and very insightful. Thank you very much, Sean and, and Caleb. Is there any last words you'd like to give our listeners before we before we finish? Yeah, there's something that I guess your listeners don't know is that we actually were we were roommates in our journey to San Francisco. <laughs> and Andrew snores like crazy, but it's okay because I do too. It's only Sean. <laughs> yeah, we had a snore off. It was fantastic. Snore off. I think you did. I think I probably did, yeah. Absolutely. It was after a couple of whiskeys one night. <laughs> I thought what happens in San Francisco stays in San Francisco, Sean. Sure. <laughs> San Francisco, yeah, absolutely. Oh, there's a lot more stories we're going to get out. Ah! <laughs> Wonderful. Kind of. Oh, I don't know. I forgot any last words. I don't know. Best of luck if you're starting your startup. Yeah. Don't, don't 
don't be afraid to try things and don't be afraid to learn. You're going to have many failures before you actually get to a success. And if your first one is a success, good for you. You're one of the rare few. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Sean and uh, Caleb. That was, was excellent. And thank you very much for listening, everybody.